You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, thanks for coming back, folks. Uh, and again, thanks for being here. This is uh, this is a stellar evening for Did for you not us. Get anything I said? Oh, here, oh, <laughs> ham, cheese, <laughs> seltzer. What else? Um, uh, this is like uh, more of a discussion than a presentation. But uh, so I'd like to start. Does anybody have any particular question or anything for either of our authors that they'd like to raise at the beginning? Yes. What happens at the end of the story? <laughs> <laughs> That's always the question. That's why we do this. You'll have to buy next month's New Yorker to know. Well, I'm going to tell. I'm, I'll tell you one thing that happens. Um, this is not the end of the story, but. The doctor does um, have to tell her about possible side effects, of course, because there's side effects to every treatment. And in this treatment, they found some neural side effects, some neurologic side effects. And um, he tells a, a story of one one man who had cancer who came for the treatment and did get cured completely. So he was happy about that, but he forgot his wife, um, and this created problems. <laughs> to the, in their in their marriage, but it, but there was a happy ending to that. This is not what happens to our character, but there are consequences. The other thing that this is about is that, uh, as in everything, every decision you make has consequences, and in medicine, it's sometimes it's, I don't think this is right, but it sometimes seems that those consequences or those decisions are more dramatic and certainly more. Um, uh, life cha altering. I'm not sure that's true. I don't think that's true, actually, but it, it feels that way often. So this is also a story about taking the consequences of decisions you make. Is the story not been published yet? Well, the story, I, I told you this is hot off the press, and I'm, I'll go home and it's written, but I, it's actually not typed out, so I'll, I'll do that tonight so that you can... <laughs> 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 and give me your email, I'll send it to you, sir. sir. <laughs> All right, well, I have a question for Peter. Peter, it seems like you have <coughs> a distinguished career in creating and, and sort of um, celebrating many of the tropes of modern fantasy, and in fact, one of the creators of modern fantasy as we understand it, but lately it seems you've been engaged in deconstructing fantasy. I mean, uh, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> Let the records show that at this point, Mr. Beagle took a long slug on his bottle of porter. <laughs> Terry, I don't really know what deconstruction is. I honestly don't. There are very f so many modern literary terms I simply don't know. I'm a storyteller, and I'm trying very hard, more than anything, not to bore myself. 
try not to bore myself, not to repeat myself. I know perfectly well what certain figures and certain tropes, as we say now, keep turning up in my fiction. It's like being very aware with the story I'm working on now. Okay, there are no cats in this one. <laughs> there are no incredibly ancient goddesses in this one either. And would you, for God's sake, keep the music at least down? Because these are things that turn up in my work all the time for a variety of reasons. So it's really more than anything that I can't say lightly, oh, I don't care about the audience, I'm trying to amuse myself. That's not it. I mean, that's, I'm a professional like you, you know, if I'm anything else. I've had to feed people doing what I do. But I am trying, I'm trying not to bore myself. And I still cling as a kind of motto, metaphor, coat of arms, I don't know, to a line in James, Th James Thurber's wonderful book, The Thirteen Clocks. There's a moment in that book when everything is collapsing around the head of the villain, the wicked Duke of Coffin Castle, who's one of the great villains who goes down fighting. And Thurber writes, something very much like something that no one had ever seen before came trotting down the castle stairs and ran across the floor. <laughs> and the Duke clutches his henchman and says, what was that? And the henchman clutches back and says, I don't know, but whatever it is, it's the only one there ever was. <laughs> and that's, I'd like someone to say that about my work. <laughs> that's a pretty good argument. Yes, please. As much as anything, because no one, no work has just one source of inspiration, especially when you're looking back after close to 50 years. As much as anything, it probably comes from a painting. My, I have two favorite cousins. This is the Mexican side of the family, and the older one, Electa, married a Spanish painter who roped me in in the summer of 1956 to helping him with putting a fashion show together, the actual physical fashion show, runways and all. And at the end of the summer, and I enjoyed it immensely, I liked him, the work was interesting. And at the end of the summer, obviously not able to pay me, he gave me one of his own paintings, which I still have. And the painting is one of unicorns fighting bulls. And one of the bulls is red. And I had that for a good, six years or so before I ever started working on that book in the summer of 62. So that's probably the oldest influence, that and the fascination with unicorns since childhood. Cool. Yes, please. Of all your characters, do you have a favorite? Yeah, it varies from day to day. There are certain characters I know who keep recurring. I'm very fond of my, my lal, a small black warrior woman who was not intended to be a warrior woman. Maybe that's it. Because Lal was supposed to be a storyteller, to memorizing the tribal stories and reciting them in a certain way. And in her old age, long since out of the mercenary business, she's back to what she was supposed to be. But I'm very fond of Lal, and sometimes I'll be walking past a television set where there's some superhero show going on, 
to stop for a moment and watch whoever the hell this is in the tights and the cape. Just watching, huh, my lal could take him and walk on. <laughs> so she's certainly one of my favorites. I don't have any one special favorite. Um, people always ask if Schmendrick the Magician is a self-portrait. In fact, he isn't, not in the way people imagine. But that butterfly with a head full of songs and poems and old commercials and junk over the centuries, that's the closest thing to a self-portrait I've ever done. <laughs> cool. Yes, Peter. Peter, um, I detect <clears throat> irony. Do you talk about your influence of irony in your work? Or your... For heaven's sake, I'm New York Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we do. <laughs> it's what we do. Irony is like a folk song with my people. <laughs> it's practically what many of us have in... <laughs> It's practically what many of us have in place of religion. It's just a, a way of looking at things. It's not even, we don't even think the word, I think. The, perhaps the reason that, that I grew up, among other sorts of people, with black families in New York is that the humor was the same. And the humor was always... When you, as the blues song says, when you see me laughing, I'm laughing just to keep from crying. And that runs very deeply in a number of cultures, not just Jewish, not just black. But that's what I think of when you say the word irony. Michael, at how much of, uh, talking back to that story, um, I'm, just to be specific, at what point does it tip into science fiction? It hasn't yet. <coughs> well, I but you have this company that fixes genomes. That's science fiction, isn't it? We were talking about, I was talking about I this wasn't at, sure. at, at, yeah, Peter wasn't sure. You, year, many years ago, I wrote, I wrote about some of the, I wrote about, um, about genetic about 30 years ago, I wrote a story that now we're doing routinely, um, talking about genetic um, prog prognosis and things like that. Uh, this story tips into what we can't do about the time that he says we can fix this gene. But the fact is we're fixing some genes, actually. It's really amazing. There's a, a disease called leukemia. Well, there's a disease called... I think it's chronic myelocytic leukemia that's, um, that's been uh, tr um, narrowed down to a single mutation. And there, there is some genetic treatments for this, um, for this disease now. It's really incredible. This was a killer disease, a slow killer, but it was a killer. And now there's, we talk about cure, and it's on a genetic basis. It's not on the basis of using poison drugs. Um, so that's, so I, I, you know, actually the real answer is I don't see any of this as science fiction because it's going to happen and it's just a question of when and it's not going to happen for me in my lifetime. But if you're 20 or 30, it's going to happen in your lifetime. That in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, you're going to be able to have your stuff cured. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. 
<laughs> it's pretty great. I mean, it's going to happen, I'm telling you. And there's other stuff that's going to happen, too. You're going to live a long time. Um, uh, some, in the very simplest sense, um, like the genes, the gene, this is really a complicated story, but there's maybe 30,000 genes in your body. That's really a simplistic way of looking at it. And the genes are like a few thousand base pairs long. And some genes have one mutation out of a th several thousand bases, bases or chemicals. They have one tiny little mutation like one little molecule that's it's different. And that changes the whole story. That just changes the whole outcome. And you can, we now know how to, um, how to unzip, I mean, gene, genes are part of DNA that's a double helix, right? And the way they reproduce, the helix unwinds, and then it's re, it's like a zipper. It comes apart, things line up, comes back together, all is well. We can now do in the lab, we can unzip the gene, we can, re we can um, make, make proteins, make the downstream products. We can snip out little parts of genes that are bad and put in what, what we want into these genes. It's not really, actually you use viral vectors, so like, uh, like the flu virus. You get the flu, it infects all your cells, right? Uh, you take you the flu virus, take the flu virus, make it non-toxic, which you can do, right? You can make it so you don't get sick with it. Attach a little gene onto it, onto its genome. Send it into your body. It infects all the cells. If you give it the right information, the promoter sequences and the enhancer sequences, it'll start your gene to unwrap and to start producing proteins, and you can insert that gene into your genome. But what the Tea Party wants to know is, is this communism? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it to me, yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I got to say, we are doing that. Um, are we doing it clinically? No, we're not doing it clinically. Are we doing it in the labs with rats, a knockoff rats? We are. Is it amazing? It's amazing. Um, can I distinguish what's real from what's not real? I cannot because I think about this and I write about the future and the future becomes the present to me. So, but what I'm telling you today, if it's not happening today, will be happening tomorrow. So just deal with that. Yeah, that's my, my question is, have you written things that were, were just science fiction and hadn't happened yet and then you saw them? Yes. Actually? Oh, yes. Like what? Well, I wrote about this 40 years ago, 30 years ago. I wrote about um, Ronald Reagan being shot and, uh, well, not exactly shot. <laughs> I wrote about Ronald, do you know who Ronald Reagan is? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Google him up. Yeah. They're young. <laughs> anyway, I have written about these things, yeah. You'd have to, you can, you can go to my website and see some of this stuff. Deborah.
something that you have written 20 years from now and going, wow, that feels dated because it's all moved so fast in the medical field? I know, I, the, the MRI today is <coughs> no longer miraculous to most people. Saying, oh, yeah, I go into my MRI, big deal. 30 years ago, it was like I watched friends die because there was no way to sequence mm -hmm. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you, uh, like a, real, a, a good story, and I, know, and I know Peter will agree with me in a good book, um, really comes from character, and it really comes from the f what happens and the feelings and the, the uh, it's not, the tra I mean, the trappings is, to me, it's amazing, and I have to write about it, but it's, in the story I read, um, the medical and the technological stuff I write about is really fun, and but the it's the people I care about and the people that I want to present. So that doesn't get old. But yes, some I wrote a I wrote a book a few years ago about um, about longevity and their um, and this not a few years ago, about ten years ago. And this book did not get published, but it was all about stuff that is now happening in rats. But it will soon be happening in us. We will live um, twice as long as we're living now, three times as long as we're living now. I mean, you count it. I mean, the, we, have, we, are, we have identified genes that control longevity. We've, we're identifying chemical systems that control longevity. We will live longer and longer and longer. And, um, and I wrote a book about this. I wrote about people who could live, not indefinitely, but a long, long time. And... Um, <coughs> And that was on the edge when I wrote it. And now I, I don't feel it's on the edge anymore because the woman who actually is doing the research on telomerases just won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And, uh, and the telomerase is one of the, one of the controlling regions that controls this. So it's, I mean, it's out there in the world. And I feel like, well, that's not so new. But it's new to a lot of people. So the answer is yes. I think uh, anyone who writes science fiction feels that they're um, fighting the clock a little bit. <laughs> I was just thinking the um, the you know I was when I talk about science fiction I usually my idea is usually that space travel is sort of the heart of science fiction yeah. and, and, <laughs> and which went away at a certain point but uh, originally it was and robots were what part of the heart of it but part of the heart, heart of it was also longevity if you go all the way back to the golden age of sf mm -hmm. that's one of the mm. things that comes up in stories a lot i know kim stanley robinson is here somewhere right. in this crowd and yeah, uh, in here. in uh, green mars in the first the i, I know uh, he he wrote a lot about that and he he wasn't he didn't make it up it's one of the it's one of the original ideas in well the fountain of youth you know ponce de leon was yeah. when was that 1500s 1400s yeah 1500s, yeah. 1500s. I mean, you know, people have been right about it. But now it's not like fantasy. That was fantasy, right? The uh, tree of life, the tree of knowledge, that was fantasy. It's not fantasy, guys. Yeah, but in, I remember in Stan's stories, people would live a couple hundred years, and then they'd meet up with, be attracted to some girl, and then they would remember, oh, they'd been married like uh, <laughs> 110 years. Right, you can live long, but you can't keep your memory, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't keep all your <laughs> memories together. Um, any other there was questions? Someone over here. Yeah, I'm sorry. Please. Um, you know, I found the, the, the story really compelling and the few characters that are in it, in it, in a short space of time, you were able to make the reader or listener care about those characters mm. and have interest in them, you know, and, and there was sort of a 
fiction story. And one thing <clears> I like about speculative fiction is sometimes it it puts things in a different view, so things that look normal can look abnormal. And I thought, did does your character Ellen ever come to question the so-called natural uh, naturalness of the overwhelming urge of a woman to be a mother? That seems to me to be very ancient, a very a very uh, Victorian or 20th century thought, and I was kind of hoping that what was what seemed to be holding her back from actually doing the the, the test and stuff like that was that you know, and in this age where you know you can do all these things, being a biological mother perhaps wouldn't be as important. So you're huh? saying Michael's a sexist dog? <laughs> <laughs> I I have I have two daughters. I have two daughters, one of whom never wanted children, and the other of whom very much wanted children and still trying to have them. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's Victorian to want children. I don't think it's, I don't think it's monstrous and abnormal not to want them. I think um, as, as Bert Brecht writes in his play, The Good Woman of Szechuan, Children should go to the ones who can care for them. Well, but that, that's a good question. I didn't mean to, to destroy it with a joke. It's, it's a good question. Were you going to play with that at all, or was that? I, that's her? actually the second half of the story. Uh huh. I have a question. Yes. Sooner you than me. What should we hmm? keep in mind as a lesson entering? Oh, as a lesson. Well, that's a good question. Is this a cautionary tale? I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, though. Uh, just what I was saying before, I think, you know, that there are consequences to things that you choose. And the woman does choose to get the treatment, and she, and she has consequences. And she, they're totally unforeseen. And, uh, and, you know, it doesn't mean we shouldn't act, and we always do act, but um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm telling a story, you know, also. Uh, there's, not a, a, there's not a big lesson here. There's a little We also tell ourselves lesson. stories to find out how they come out. Thank you. Yeah. If we already knew, what would be the point of telling it? Thank you. Well... Cliff. Uh, this was mostly for Peter. I mean, because the, the theme in the two stories that you read for Peter was the perspective of the monster, the outsider, the very much the, the non-human things. And what seemed to me a very anthropomorphizing of the non-human. And I was wondering if, you know, if, if you think that that's it's a question I've always wondered about. I've always read stories from childhood on about that first contact with a species that is not only not like us, but inconceivably not like us. And I was writing a series of stories, actually they were done as podcasts, about 
for the wonderful online magazine called The Green Man Review, which is of fiction and music and beer and delightful magazine. And they left it strictly open to me, except that they wanted the stories to deal with specific seasons, one after another. And so I imagined a story of myself and one of my three closest childhood friends, Marty, as in high school, because it was with Marty a year behind, because Marty was always the kid. He was just so brilliant, he was able to keep up, if not lead us. And I always knew that if a species from another world, another galaxy, never mind this solar system, contacted anybody, it would be Marty. It would have to be Marty. Um, and I imagined we can deal with aliens who look more or less like us, like Michael Rennie in The Day the Earth Stood Still. What if, and I literally created a story like this, what if the alien has an IQ, as we would measure it, approximately 250,000, and looks like a plate of lime jello? How do we deal with this? And I imagined Marty and me in our high school cafeteria, and Marty's lime jello speaking to him, <laughs> explaining, of course, that we don't normally look like this, but we've been studying human beings for a long time, and we know that you're easily frightened and angered by even humans like yourself who don't look like you, but everybody loves jello. <laughs> so it's decided to show up as, you know, as a plate of lime jello. And I worked it, I worked the story from that point of view. Um, a plate of lime jello coming to ask my boyhood friend Marty for help because their people are dying. Something's missing, probably dietary. <laughs> and Marty would figure it out. Back then, Marty was trained as a physicist because in the 50s, that's what you did with that kind of mind. And I've always been enormously grateful that the computer age caught up with Marty. He was already here. And so that's the closest you know, I've come to, I think, a non-human point of view, even to the point where um, it's already been determined that there are a number of Marty Sandlers in different galaxies, and the one they treasure has died. But Marty is also a Marty Sandler. There's, there's a connection across the galaxies. So they've come to this 14-year-old boy, who shouldn't be in high school yet, um, for advice. Well, my character you know, gets excited by this and says, um, would I be, would I, would I have a, a doppelganger in, in, in your universe? I mean, my name's Peter Beagle. Do you have any memory of me? The plate of lime jello looks at me as much as lime jello can look and says, you're Peter Beagle. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the plate of lime jello says, well, can't be helped. <laughs> at that point, the bell rings for the next class. <laughs> but that's as close as I've come to escaping the the inevitable anthropological point of view.
And there are few people, I think, uh, who have done better than I at escaping it, but this was my closest. Please. Um, Thanks for that. Thank you, indeed. Oh, yeah, no, it's great. Um, when I was a kid, I remember in school a lot, my teachers would, you know, I would say like, oh, well, I like the story part of it. And then I would get berated for not understanding and not caring more about like, the themes and metaphors and really, you know, like getting into the guts of the story. Metaphors, metaphors, yeah. And I always felt like I was sort of looked down on for just, you know, liking it on a story level. And I sort of wanted to get your take on that. And then also, I was wondering um, was of your new uh, the perfumes, the um, uh, last unicorn perfumes. Which one do you recommend? I don't know. I like several of them, but I can't pick them out. I have a very poor sense of smell, I think, compared to other people. And from time to time, I've been very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have no theories of literature. I know what a metaphor is, and I know what a simile is. And I'll use them and look back, oh, that was a simile, yeah. I'll use whatever tools I've got without question. I've been doing this such a long time that I'm not playing naive. I know what I'm doing most of the time, not always, but most of the time. But in terms of themes, there are a lot of people I read, and I don't necessarily know what the hell they're talking about. But for some reason, they attract me. Maybe I'll figure it out. I don't know what this guy's doing. It's like one of the writers I inherited from my father was Joseph Conrad, who, for whom English was his third language. He started with Polish, wrote in French, finally taught himself to write in English. And I, find my, I go back into Conrad, and I find myself saying, Joe, I don't care if this is your third language. You keep up syntax like that, and you're going to lose all your all your readers by page five. And by page five, he's got me again, and I'm just spellbound because more than anything, structure, theme, metaphor—all I know is that Sea Captain Joseph Conrad's telling me a story. Now listen. And my father taught in some of the worst schools in New York. He was a history teacher. And he told me that he learned early on, because he had to, that even if your class looks like a police lineup, they will listen to history if you make it a story about people like themselves. They'll sit still. My old man got very good at it. Oh, I have a question. Um, Louder. The, would be the what? The knot of caring. It's an interesting phrase. The knot the of caring. Well, I think the knot of caring is uh, in any story that, yeah, I don't think that was the main focus. I mean, we're not, uh, that's not one of the stories everybody's familiar with. But um, uh, that was a story mainly about um, um, the 
uh, nostalgia, the old and the new, you know, the old ways and the new ways and, and how they, you know, had a sort of a nostalgic look at that. So I think that was what that was about. But uh, one question I wanted to ask, um, um, to me, one of the things I don't, uh, I, just, I understand what Peter's saying and I, I respect it and I, I respect Peter's work, but I disagree uh, with, <laughs> with that it's all about story. Um, and it, I'm more interested or somewhat interested in, in going, when you're writing a story, I was going to ask Michael in particular, you make dis, uh, choices, narrative choices, how you're going to tell the story. You know, the story is the story, but how do you construct the story? You know, and to me, one of the one of the first problems I have to solve as a writer is who's telling the story and why are they telling? Mm. You know, and I was thinking about your story, particularly in the in the uh, reference to what uh, she asked earlier about it. Your story really kind of, um, I think, sort of masquerades as a. A very conventional mid-list uh, romance story, in a way. I mean, it's it's it has that. What was your? It, it could have been a first-person story. Mm-hmm. What was your? I mean, I, I know that when you're writing the story, you're thrashing around and you tell the story. But looking back at it, how? What decisions did you make about how to cast this particular story? That's a. This story, much more than most, the the. The uh, point of view character kept, I kept, it kept uh, shifting for me. Um, mostly it was from the point of view of the female, of the w- young woman, Ellen. What they call third person but close, right? <laughs> <laughs> third person but close. Wasn't uh, it? Um, but, uh, but parts that I, that I actually took out, um, there were, there were parts that I really wanted to write um, from the doctor's point of view um, because that's something that's not written about that much and it's also something that I know a lot about and is interesting to me. And the, I, f- I felt I, I actually feel I don't have this nailed down actually perfectly quite yet because different people keep intruding on it and it's okay. Um, it's it's okay. Sometimes the the husband just has to make himself heard, and he, you can't do it if it's all from the from the uh, wife's point of view. But it, it's been a little ungainly for me, and and it's, it's kind of fun a little bit because it's a, it surprises. It's like the characters are sort of speaking out and uh, not wanting to be muzzled, and no. uh, you know I have this structure, and Terry's right. You sort of go in traditional uh, traditional stories you have one point of view you're not supposed to change points of view particularly in a short story I mean you can do it in a long novel that's okay Uh, but in a short story it's very jarring Um, maybe just because I finished writing a novel and this is the next thing I've written so there are people kind of demanding to have their voices heard Almost in almost in that first person way, yeah. I that, that does happen. You, I say, your story matters enormously to me, but so does character. And when I'm very lucky, I have somebody explode into my head, insisting on telling his or her story. They want to tell their story. Yeah. And it may not be the story you're writing. But you if know. You, but 
for me, that's a stroke of luck because structure is always my major problem. And if somebody already knows, somebody outside me knows the structure and wants to tell the story, then it's then by comparison it's easy. Mm -hmm. I just listen and take it down. Yeah. It does that happen sometimes. It doesn't happen often. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But enough that you feel if it only would happen with this story, <laughs> whichever one you're working on. Any other questions or comments? Oh. Yes. Why we're all dressed alike? No, I'm curious. Do you think that the uh, idea of love being nothing more than a will to persevere is any bit of a contrast with mm. the two stories? I don't know that it's nothing more than a will to persevere. But I do know, you know, at coming up on 72 next week, that love takes understanding and pers perseverance um, past illusion. When you get past the point of, of seeing somebody in your waking dream and seeing somebody as he or she actually is, there'll always be a stranger. That's something that turns up in a book of mine very intensely. No matter how much we love each other, no matter how much we know each other, we're still strangers. We should never forget that, even though we have to. And that's about what I know. But I know that, in that sense, sort of relationship, Perseverance is as much part of it as it is when you're writing a novel. Because with a book, you can quit any time if that's what you want to do. Or to, and people walk away from relationships, heaven knows, as they often do from unfinished works of art. I'd like to say that my, uh, my main relationship is a work of art, so I want to... <laughs> That's sort of <laughs> and I thank you for saying that. No, and it takes work, so I guess that's perseverance. I'm gonna cry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was supposed to be irony. That was trying to be ironic, but I guess not. Please. Question for Michael. Uh, the writer-editor relationship is obviously very important, but given what you write, do you have any difficulties with? dealing with editors who basically don't follow the, the internal structure of what you write because it's based on things they simply don't understand or can't grasp. It's, it's tougher to edit you given that what your, your writing is based on. Why do you say that? Well, subject matter in a story has implications. In a, in a science fiction story that's based heavily in physics, if you have an editor, actually, um, Michael Curlin in the back is a wonderful thing. Years ago, he showed me one of his manuscripts where copy editors sitting there saying, Please said exactly as written, writer has a tendency to make up words like microfiche. <laughs> 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 so you're dealing with editors who don't understand your subject as those who are not doctors would theoretically not understand. Does that ever cause you any issue at all? You know what? 
Uh, it hasn't. Maybe they defer to me for ridiculous <laughs> reasons. I don't know. <laughs> That's I, I, you know, it never even occurred to me. We, we fought over words. We fought over, but not medical words, words that I made up or, yeah, like you said, but wow. That would make me very angry, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, it just intrigues me because it, your, your field is something that most people... Well, you know, I, I, you know, Terry talked about this briefly. Uh, you know, science fiction uh, traditionally is about uh, outer space and phys phys physics and astrophysics and robotics, and, and that's not stuff that I know that much about. But I don't know that editors know that much about it, and yet they've been publishing that. I don't know if they have those arguments with the people who write that. I, I don't know. No, but uh, science fiction, uh, you know, um, I'm reminded of the first time that I read Octavia Butler, and, mm. uh, and it was the first time I'd read a hard science fiction writer about biology. You know, I instead of about engineering, you know, and uh, yeah. and I think that uh, Michael's work is is hard SF in that way, and that the 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 core of it is hard SF, you know, and the science is the core of it. You see, it's uh, funny. I, I, what's funny? I mean, for now we're getting into the science fiction stuff, but I never thought of my stuff as science fiction in a way. I always. I thought of it as science and fantasy. I felt like I was just mm -hmm. making stuff up, but I never really felt it was hard science. I thought hard science was engineering <laughs> and bulkheads that, that's and, the way, and that's helmets the way, that's and spaceships. <laughs> that's certainly the way and it I was when I, felt, I was growing up. Yeah, it was, and I felt biology was, hu I mean, it's for me, the path, to, the path to biology was science because I love science and humanism because I'm, because I've always been about helping people, and that was always really humanistic. And, and that is why, as I was telling you, be, you know, when we first introduced, after you read, you've got to watch it with doctors as a writer, <laughs> because they're perfectly likely to write exactly that. Um, science infused with humanism and character. That's why so many, so many doctors have become writers, and some of them astonishingly good. Who? Chekhov, Crichton. Che Chekhov. Michael Who? Crichton. Michael Crichton. Not a Ethan Kanan. Maul was trained as a doctor, so was Robert Louis Stevenson. What was that French guy? Doyle, too. Doyle, too, yeah. Interesting. All over. All right. <laughs> Maybe last. Better be good. Far away, where you can see the big picture from like the interest in the character that the reader has to have has to be 
you get it wrong and you try again. Yeah, it's got to sound right. You got to feel right. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I s said on the introduction, this is one of the stories that I think of as one of the Doctor Diary stories, and so mm -hmm. as that, um, there's going to be a lot of um, there's going to be medical stuff, and I'm going to present that in a way that maybe people will understand, and that's kind of objective, sort of detached, sort of at a distance, maybe what you're talking about. But um, but the part of the the other part of the story that interests me is the is the characters, and so. Um, I think because it falls into one of those stories. I mean, not all my stories are like this. This is just uh, one of those. But I think, you know, Peter was just sort of mumbling or saying that it has to feel right. It has to, um, I'm afraid of getting too schmaltzy a little. I'm afraid of getting too sentimental. I mean, this is heavy shit I'm writing, you know, life, death. Birth, infinity. Does everyone know where that comes from? <laughs> <laughs> Do people know where that's from? What? Ben Casey. <laughs> Thank you. He was a doctor? Ben Casey. <laughs> Vince <laughs> Edwards. Oh, my right. hero. Well, he was a little, a little hairy. Dr. Kildare now, on the other hand. He was awesome. Does every, did everyone see that? Richard Chamberlain in, in Yvette Mimieux. Do you remember that episode when she had epilepsy and she was on the surfboard? She was a surfer. She was a surfer girl and she couldn't stay off the surfboard and she had ground mal epilepsy. And he had to, you know, what was he, do? he loved her, you know, that was a sort of a, a little explosion of the boundaries, you know, between doctor and patient right there, but. Um, fiction, given Richard yeah, fiction given Richard, but he was an actor, exactly. That was a wonderful episode, you know, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't even know what the question was, but. <laughs> We're riffing, but that, that was the beginning of the Ben Casey, which was J Jaffe, who was, ja who was the? Sam Jaffe. Sam Jaffe. Dr. So, Gillespie. So it was Dr. Gillespie, so that was Vince Edwards and Sam Jaffe, who were these icons, you know. On the other side was Richard Chamberlain and Raymond Massey, who was, uh, these were both amazing. Uh, you know, anyone would want them as role models, you know, and if you saw that, you'd, you're all, of, all of you would be in medical school and be doctors. <laughs> well, these guys are starting to talk about what they really know and care about, so I'm going to cut this short. <laughs> <laughs> uh, What's the point of that? <laughs> um, does anybody... You can talk to us to outside. Add, <laughs> then come back and see us. I, in have, wait, I have one just for everybody who wants to be a writer in the audience. Um, you can get this Don't one. do it. <laughs> <laughs> End of time. This one what? Actually, it's perfectly true because if they, if don't do it stops them, they're better off. Yeah. Um, do you think that there's one golden rule we should all follow when we're trying to prepare a story? The only rule I know, and damn near the only thing I tell young writers or speaking writing classes, is show up for work. Because it's easy to be sitting there when the muse has tapped your shoulder and you're just writing like crazy and it's coming out in a wonderful flow. The tricky part is when the muse, you know, is, for heaven's sake, gone off to see a movie and you're sitting there and nothing is coming. For the two hours you've allotted yourself to just work today, two, three hours, nothing is coming and you still have to sit still. That's the hard part. You have to s just sit. Amen. Amen.
Somebody asked me one time, where do your ideas come from? And I said, they come from my butt if I sit on it <laughs> long enough. It'll come out. Yeah, they are. You know? That's good. That's nice. Those words Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>